0: 15, just a couple of verses we're going to look at. Boy, it's important here and the principle behind it can certainly be a help in our church, really in any church. This is certainly needed, but let's, we're going to dive into this. Starting in verse number 19, 19, 20, and 21 is what we're going to be looking at here this morning. The person still speaking is James. He says, Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but we, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. (coughs) Excuse me. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly love you. We thank you, Lord, for your word and for our church. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time now. I pray, Lord, you would control what I say, how I say it. Lord, I pray for your mercy, your grace, your help to be filled with your spirit. Lord, I pray that your word would help your people and strengthen us and draw us closer to you. Father, please bless Lord, if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted, Lord, we certainly pray for that as well, that your conviction and your drawing on their heart into a place of true repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, please work. We love you, Father. We pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Of course, we've been here now in Acts chapter 15 for a couple of weeks. Uh, We're coming through the book of Acts, and we have Saul here when we came into Starting around Acts chapter 12, we see the gospel just exploding among Gentiles. Acts chapter 10, you have the very first time in Scripture where you have somebody who has been converted, a a Jew had been converted actually taking the gospel to a Gentile. And that, of course, was Peter with the vision that he had from God. The Lord literally having to give him this vision to tell him, go, go. You need to go unto the Gentiles. We covered all that, how they were lacking understanding. It was confusing to them how all this would come about. And, so, and then we have the explosion of this church in Antioch. Um, it just takes off. Antioch of Syria, this church just explodes. It's, it's, it, it, they have for their pastor, the Apostle Paul, Barnabas. I mean, just incredible men are there. And so it's during it's from that church that the Lord sends out. At this time, by the way, keep in mind the church at Jerusalem was suffering greatly under persecution. So they have dwindled down. It's the apostles and a few others who are still there at this time. But they have dwindled down greatly. And so the church that is... In the entire region that is helping to reach the world that is the most active and growing is the church at Antioch. And from there, the Lord calls out Paul and Barnabas unto the very first missionary journey. They are commissioned out of the church to go and establish churches. And they head out into a region called Galatia. And they had just amazing what the Lord did there. They saw churches established and settled and and they return. In chapter 15, as we get into the return from that very first missionary journey, when they get back to the church at Antioch, they're reporting what is taking place. Peter is there. Peter happens to be at Antioch at this time as well. But Judaizers had come in. Judaizers had come in and started teaching false doctrine. They started teaching that these Gentiles who have been saved, like in this church at Antioch, that they must first basically convert to Judaism before they can truly be converted to Christ. And they they put it like this. They said, listen, they're not really saved yet. They have to be circumcised. They have to follow the law of Moses. And it led to this confusion. It led to people not understanding. And so what happens is, is... Paul and Peter still there, they all head back to the church at Jerusalem, to the rest of the apostles, and they are going to settle this issue. And they needs to settle it. And sure enough, we've been in chapter 15, the first person to speak was Peter, which is good that he did, because remember, he messed up. When he was there, he was fellowshipping with the Gentiles, eating with them, but basically when the Judaizers showed up, he backed off. And Paul had to rebuke him to his face. So Peter speaks up. And he affirms what God did in the past. He said, listen, no, let, let's face it. God gave me the vision to go into the Gentiles. I was there. I preached. I was there when they were converted. I was there in Cornelius and his house. I watched it. There was no question about it. They converted unto Christ. There was no mention of circumcision. And then he reiterates. He says, brethren, let's not forget the law never saved us. And so he concludes we are saved by grace through faith. And then Paul speaks next. Paul 2 a uh, stress is what God is currently doing. He says, listen, no, we are going out. Gentiles are truly converting to Christ. We see God's hand of approval on it because of all the miracles and wonders that he's doing. And then James speaks. And that's where, we're at. That's where we've been at the last couple of weeks is where James stands up to speak. James is currently the pastor at the church at Jerusalem. The half-brother of the Lord. And so he begins to speak, and the first thing he does, he also tells them, he said, listen, let's face it, they're getting saved. Apart from circumcision, apart from the law, this isn't right. We know this is true. And then he uses great wisdom, and he stresses to, 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 to the men of Israel that have been converted. He said, listen, God's not done with us. The kingdom is still coming. So they have settled the doctrinal issue of salvation. Salvation is by faith through grace. That's what it is. It is by repentance and faith in Christ alone through God's grace. That's it. If you are trusting in your salvation for anything else, listen, you have been deceived. Salvation is in Christ alone. The devil is doing great today at getting people to play with uh, semantics with this. I remember when I went to my grandfather's funeral. uh, My dad's dad. I went to my grandfather's funeral. I was on uh, a furlough at the time. And I went to him, and he grew up in the Catholic church. You know, I grew up Catholic. He went to Catholic schools, all that. And I am there, and, and they knew who I was. You know, family of those. I grew up going to even the Catholic church that we had it in. And, and one of them had come up to me and, and, and said, Listen, just so you know, your grandfather did accept Christ. But I know where I'm at. And so I, I wanted clarification. I said, He did. I said, What do you mean? And I knew what was coming by that. I already understood it. But it's semantic, it's the word, and it's they've learned how to use some of our own terminology. And so the multitudes of people just say, oh, Amen, I'm so glad. But you better ask the question. Well, what do you mean he accepted Christ? And they went right, right to transubstantiation, mass, before he died. Right there. Salvation is in Christ alone. So what has happened here in Acts 15, that issue is settled. But James, who is the pastor of the bunch that is speaking, he knows, but I still have problems. We have settled the doctrinal issue. But the fact is right now we have in in the same churches, we have those who are converted Gentiles and converted Jews. Two entirely different cultures coming together. And you know what? They need to get along. They need to get along. Doctrine has to lead to duty, and that's where James is going to go. James emphasized this in his own epistle in chapter 2. These two very different cultures coming together, one from a very pagan background, filled with idolatry and immorality, and the other from a basis of truth, but incredibly legalistic. And now these two are coming together. James understood we have to have them unified. We have to have them get along. We have to have that fellowship. If this is going to work, they have to get along. So James uses great wisdom in our text from God to help these churches that are forming get along. The key is going to be, as we're going to see this, is going to be love and not law. They need to be united. He very well knows... That even with this doctrinal issue settled. When it comes to salvation. There still could be great division within the churches. And the fact is a church that is fighting and divided will never be effective. He can see the open door for the devil to get in. And just cause constant division and constant bickering. And a measure of competition between the two groups. The two cultures that have come inside. He knows will never be effective. He knows the importance of them being single-minded. story is told about a father. His two boys are always arguing, always fighting. It's causing problems in the house. They're just never getting along, fighting over and over and over. And so the father, once again, they're arguing. The house is filled with strife. He grabs the oldest one and brings the family around. He gives him a stick and he says, break the stick. So he breaks it. He gives him two. He said, break them both. He grabs the two and he breaks it. He gives him three. Break all three. He breaks all three. He gets up to about five. It's a little more difficult. But he finally is able to break it. He gives him six. He says, now break all six. He can't do it. It's not possible. And then the father stressed to his family, a house divided cannot stand. And that's true. The devil do it. He can't even in our church to cause division, to cause strife. If, if he can attack within was what we see taking place. He tried attacking from without, but, but the church was flourishing and growing. So now the attacks are coming from within. We are much more effective when we are unified as a church. When we have good fellowship with each other, enjoying the relationship, so there's not the division and the strife. We have the same purpose and the same goal. But the truth is, think about this, all of us in here have different life experiences. Every single one of us. Which have brought us to the place where we are right now. But because of what we've come through in life, we can all view things differently. We'll see them from different perspectives. We have differences in our walk. What Roger experienced growing up as a farmer in Iowa is much different than what I experienced growing up in Cleveland, Ohio. I mean, how Greg grew up in Michigan. Where's he at right now? Where's Greg go? He's gone. Probably out there ushering or something. But how Greg grew up over in Michigan, I mean, anybody that grew up in Michigan, my goodness. That's why we have a reading class established in our church. The fact is we are different. And that's fine. The Lord has directed our steps. But all of us, even as we come together here, have to work together. And really, in the United States of America, we're unique in that way. I remember when I entered the military, and I understood the, the importance of one group of people when I, when I was in Korea for a full year. To see how that language worked, but to, to, for the first time, really being apart for an extended time, a part of a culture of one people. And, and part of that I understood also the greatness of our own country because of all the different people in one place. There's almost a picture of what, what churches should look like as we reach the world. In our own nation. But we can also see in our own nation right now how effective it can be to cause division and hatred. And how ineffective as a nation all of a sudden you can be. The same is very true in a local church and in a family. So we see James here addressing a great need that he knows still exists and problems that can still arise. He says, listen, the doctrinal issue is settled. We get saved by faith through grace. That's how this takes place. But he knows, I still got issues to deal with. He had Gentiles coming out of paganism. The Jews steeped in Judaism with legalism. And so what he does here, I'm going to put this in two points here. He gives a charge and then the the constraining behind it. So first off, let's look at the charge that is given in 19 and 20. He said, wherefore my sentence is that we trouble, not them. The word trouble means almost to throw. It literally has the idea of casting stones in somebody's path that's walking, hindering them, causing them to stumble, to trip up. Which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. He goes, in other words, as he just said, we're saved by grace through faith. We're not going to trouble them. He says, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols, from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. He gives four charges, four commands that he has given to the Gentiles to follow, and it's interesting. He gives them the commander to abstain from pollution of idols, from fornication, from eating things strangled, and from eating blood. You might be wondering if the three of these here apply to us today. I remember I ran into that in the PN when I was in New Guinea, missionary in New Guinea, in the village in the church. That issue came up as they're going through the Bible. They thought, "Wait, we got we got to change how we're eating." And I said, "No, no, we, we we need to go through this. Let me explain what you're looking at right here." So let's first look at the charges that are given, these different commands that are given. Then we're going to look at the constraining that is behind them. First off. He gives the charge to abstain from the pollution of idols. The word pollution, of course, means defilement. This is referring to a practice, the word is referring to a practice that was in place, where they would, in paganism, in the idolatry that was there in the Gentile cultures, they would make sacrifices at their temples, on, in, in part of their idolatry, and they'd do these sacrifices. Many times there was meat left over. What, what they would do from those temples, they'd actually take that meat and sell it to the markets. The markets would then in turn sell it to the people. And so what he's referring to here is the practice of, he's saying, he's saying, listen, we need to command them that when they go to the markets, don't buy the meats that have been offered unto the idols. To the, to the Jewish believer, this was still a great offense. To them, it was part of idolatry. They didn't understand it was actually inconsequential. But in their mind, how they viewed that act was associated with idolatry. Now understand, you have the Gentiles coming from paganism. You have the Jews coming from Judaism and very legalistic coming together. They will view the purchasing of those meats very differently. Alright, let me explain. I think you'll understand in a second. The Gentiles that got saved grew up with idolatry. They actually know what it is to commit idolatry over and over and over. They know what it was to go to the temple and offer the sacrifices. They know what it was to bow down to a stupid idol. They lived it. It was their life. It never even occurred to them that when they went and bought meat at a market, that that meat had anything to do with idolatry. Because they lived idolatry. They knew what it actually was. And that certainly wasn't part of it. That was just buying meat. That's all it was. But to the Jew, they associated it with idolatry. So in light of this difference, James charges the Gentiles, comrades, to avoid eating meats which were offered unto the idols. So the question comes up, why? Why did he do that? They're not, under, they're not under this law. Why this command? The meat means nothing. There was nothing wrong at all with eating the meat itself. Nothing. The converted Gentiles in their mind would no way associate that with an act of idolatry. They understood true idolatry. Let's, over to, let's look over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. A man who is sitting here listening to James addresses this even further in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 1. Now as touching things offered unto idols... We know that we all have knowledge, knowledge puff, puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered and sacrificed unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is none other uh, God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or on earth and there be God's many and Lord's many but to us there is but there is but one God the father of whom all things and we are in him one uh, and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom all things and we by him and by him are all things excuse me verse 7 how be it there is not in every man that knowledge for some with conscience Of the idol unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God; for neither if we eat, are we the better. Neither if we uh, neither if we eat not, are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see Uh, "...the which thou hast knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple. Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall thy weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But ye uh, sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend." So he's addressing the same issue in chapter 8, and he deals with two different groups. There are those groups that are going to see that, no, this is unto an idol. And he says, if they see you eating that, they're going to think, wow, he's, he's partaking in idolatry. He said, and he knows, he says, the truth is, we know there's nothing to an idol. Nothing at all. There's one God, there's one Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing to this. And he says, so the liberty is there to eat it. He said, but you cannot use your liberty when it's going to cause somebody else to stumble. It's not about you making yourself right and saying, oh, look, listen, I'm the one who really understands this. It, on either side, whether it was a converted Gentile or a converted Jew, either one of them coming together and saying, listen, I, I, I know what this is really all about. He says, no, abstain from it. And that action causes another to stumble. You have to put the person over your liberty, over your right. See, our problem is we live in such a self-centered form of Christianity today that to us what is more important is us showing us we know the real truth. I don't care if this offends you, I'm doing it. It's a self-centered approach. people are more important than you being right in your point. So Paul is dealing with a, a very real issue that was in all the churches with the Gentiles who have who have come to know Christ with this the, uh, the, the portion of the meats that were offered unto idols and, and how they are going to go about this. There's some that realize it's absolutely nothing. It's nothing new. To it, or others are going to absolutely think this is an act of idolatry. So He gives the charge unto the Gentiles. He says, now, but listen, salvation is settled. This is what you need to do. You need to abstain from those meats that have been polluted by idols. We're going to get to the why more often, but it deals with their brethren, the converted Jews. Next, he brings up to abstain from fornication. Now, this, this certainly is going to be needed. He says that they abstain from pollution of idols and from fornication. Now, this is a moral issue that he's dealing with, different than the other three that he brings up. This is dealing with morality. You have to understand here what James is dealing with, how he understood, and he was right, the Gentile mind and sexual sins. He understood what they're coming out of with their pagan worship and how how much immorality was a part of it. Do you understand that most of the priests in the temple would be prostitutes? That that it had gotten to a place almost like our culture right now. We're just about there, if not there. I mean, it was definitely worse in this culture, but we're at the same place where there's almost no shame associated with anything when it came to sex. Just no shame at all. He knew that. He knew these guys coming out. He goes, they even relate immorality to religion. I mean, in their mind, that was common. You know, fornication, adultery, I mean, just everywhere, rampant. I mean, and, and that, that those were things that took place when you went to the temple as part of your worship. So he gives the command here, listen, no, you have to abstain from fornication. I mean, how they viewed marriage was wrong. I mean, how they viewed sex was wrong. All, all of that was wrong. I mean, prior to conversion, they were very wickedly in their relationships. Marriage and divorce were so common in the pagan lands. It was just, over anything, it was just incredible. And he knew they had to change how they view and how they deal with the opposite sex. And then third and fourth, I'm going to combine. They're dealing with the exact same issue right here. He says, and from things strangled and from blood. It's both the same issue. And these are, these are diet, more dietary restrictions that were given. Avoiding meats from animals, birds, whatever. They've been strangled without the letting of blood. Because blood would be in the meat. Uh, this certainly would be considered an offense to any Jewish man. Unlawful to be eaten. Leviticus 17, of course, deals with this forbidden by the law. Now, this was now given to the Gentiles to follow, even though the dietary laws have been changed, and they're not under it. They're not. But he tells them, no, no, you need to follow this. For the same reason, he said, abstain from pollution of idols. He is telling them, this is for your brethren. We're going to tie this in in a few minutes with Romans chapter 14 with the eating of meats. The fact is, we saw it already, that God has changed dietary laws. However, within these churches, if they're going to use their liberty and it's going to cause their brother to stumble or to be offended, you don't do it. They have something new that needs to be governing, governing their actions. And that is going to be love and not law. So James is trying to put together right now, giving these commands, and he says, listen, you guys got to get along. There's certain things you're going to have to restrict, even if you have liberty to do them. That doesn't matter. Don't put your liberty above that. Now, that brings me to point number two. So let's look at how this is going to work. The constraining behind it. The why behind all this. What is going to motivate them to obey? It's true. If you eat the meat, there's nothing wrong with it. But that doesn't mean they should do it. Just because certain things might be lawful for you to do doesn't mean they're expedient for you to do. We have a new law that has been given to us in Scripture, in the New Testament, and that is a love for each other. So instead of using their liberty and even gloating, they were to show love and not do those things which would offend and cause division. It's called meekness. In our pride, and our self-centered culture, again, we, we tend to view this very differently. Look over in John chapter 13. This is the basis for where James is going. We're going to see this in the epistle of James. But we got to go to John thirteen first. Jesus said this in verse thirty four. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is going to be governing their actions. A genuine love for each other. Following this command that is given by Christ, following this law of love, this is going to be James' point. This is what's going to settle it right now. That's, it was a very real issue in those churches that had to be dealt with. I mean, today, you can see the devil using the same thing. I mean, if, you, if you, I remember when I was in uh, New Mexico, my very first assignment in the Air Force, there was a fellow there who was strong on SDA, strong SDA. And you could see the dietary restrictions that were in place there. Uh, much like the fourth command, which was lifted up above the others and whatnot. So th- there was already, you can already look at that see principles that were out of place right there. <clears throat> look over in Galatians. Galatians now. I want you to see some things here. Because we as a church, there, there's things in our life that even though we might have liberty to do certain things, it doesn't mean you should. What guides our decisions in this is, is whether, well, is this, going to be, is this going to cause somebody to stumble if I do this? You say, well, well, that's their problem. No, it's not. He's your brother. That's your sister. You're there to be a help. That's what you're there to be. It's not their problem. Look at Galatians chapter 6. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Verse 2. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill, what? The law of Christ. Which is that you'll love one another. That you love one another. It's loving others, seeking to help others, seeking that compassion, not seeking simply self and what your rights are. Look back at this. Let's go back to the previous chapter, what led up to this, because it's interesting. Look at verse 13. For, brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but notice the context where he goes with this. But by love, serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Here he's dealing with our liberty, our, our, our and what we're... We could draw this out with, I was to, if I was to do a series on liberty. Much of it deals with us, we're now at liberty to do right, by the way. But nonetheless, when you come across something that you know would cause a brother to offend, the law that's to govern you now is the law of love. Saying, you know what, I'm not going to do it. That's going to cause them to offend. I, I, I'm not going to show that I am right in this. No, I'm going to try to help them through this. Allowing meekness to help control. Go to James chapter 2. The same man who wrote this epistle is the same one we see speaking in Acts 15. Let me see if I can find the verse I want. I'm just going to go to one verse here. I'm going to see if I can find it. Yes. There it is. He's repeating it. Let's just look at verse 8. James stressing the same thing that we see in Galatians. It's, and again, it is what's motivating behind what he's addressing in Acts chapter 15. It has nothing to do, remember, it's not dealing anything with their salvation. That is settled. He said, that's done. It's dealing with how they react with each other now. Verse 8, James says this, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, here's the royal law, the same one Christ gave us. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself you do well. Loving each other. Allowing that to govern us. Allowing that to direct our actions. Romans, we're not going to turn there for time's sake. Romans 14, though, is another one that gets in there. It talks about one is seeming one day above another. One says he can eat meats. One says he can't. I mean, it just describes it and how you go through that. And, And he concludes, though, with a really good point that I love in Romans 14, though. He says, by the way, it's, it's, not, it's getting close near the end of the chapter when, when he drives to this. He basically drives to this fact of saying, listen, what you need to understand is this, is every one of us will give an account before Christ. You will. Christ will judge it. That will take place. You will stand before him and he will judge it because of the same issue Paul was trying to settle in how to deal with a weak brethren versus a strong brethren, and, 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 and where all of a sudden there's a competitive that takes place as to who's right, who's flaunting, who's gloating. He says, no, just stop. <clears throat> Love, and not simply the law, is what is to guide their actions. It's because of the royal law that was been given that they are to follow that. Love becomes our law. We are to think of others. To demonstrate genuine love. We're not to mock, we're not to ridicule, but we're to help. We're not to be a stumbling block. And you can think, there, there's, there are times, and this is getting into, into a little bit deeper stuff, a little bit more of me, but there are times... That the action of it, let's, take, let's just take, for example, the meat, since that's what the text is dealing with. There certainly is, and that's what Paul brings up in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There are actually times, even though eating the meat is not sin, there are times where a certain person, by the way, he views it, when he does eat that meat, it's sin. It's sin. It wasn't because of the meat, because God knows, there's, the, Paul said, it's nothing. But there are real world circumstances because of how God looks at a heart and a mind and a life to where that person actually partakes of the meat, it is sin. There could be different things that lead to that. The doubting, well, I'm not sure. And if you go ahead and you do that anyhow, you're not sure? Oh, no. Mm-mm. You abstain. The love that he's dealing with, by the way, I think we need to discuss because I I think we're certainly dealing with God's love, of course. But we look at love as lovey-dovey, purely an emotion. And, And obviously a feeling of emotion can and many times does, in fact, go with love. But love is very much a principle, an action, much more than it is a feeling. Love, as as you you have heard said over and over, not just me, but by multitudes, love is a choice you make. That's what he's dealing with. It's not all of a sudden that they're gonna feel this all this mushy feeling for their brethren. Oh that's not how this is gonna work at all. But nonetheless, they have to demonstrate. Not because of an emotion, but because of a command to love, a direct care, concern for others and their growth, and respond accordingly. So it's out of love for their brethren that the Gentiles are to restrict their diet and to follow those laws. For the love of their brethren. Because it would cause them to stumble. It would be offensive. It would be wrong. And many times we don't need a a different set of law. Listen, love is a very powerful emotion. Think how it works in your family. You don't need law, strict laws to govern your conduct. You do it out of love. You know, when your child, and they're small, and they were hurting, and they need comforted, you know what you do? You comfort. You grab them, and you do it. Not because there's a law written down. Love guides that. Again, it's a powerful emotion. I mean, you can think how crazy a man will act when he falls in love. How how a woman will act when she falls in love. I mean, you can think of the different actions that will take place, like when you met your spouse. I went on a hayride. Marianne lost the ring. On a hayride. A hayride. Brought the deacon the next day. We pulled up an empty cart with no hay on it. This is the cart we were on the night before with all the hay on it. And we sifted through hay. Whew. To find a little rain. That, we already walked the path, by the way. Everywhere it went, we walked the path on the hay ride. Didn't find it. Then we pulled up the other cart and started just sifting through hay. That was just stupid. No, love causes you. It's a powerful thing. And yes, we found it. Finally sifting through, clink, it was there. And so the motivation behind this, what I'm trying to get you to see is there are things yet that you might be able to do them, but if they're offensive and wrong, it's not about you being right. Why don't you have some concern and genuine love for the other person? And notice, different than how this is used in, in, in many, of the opposite way by many churches today, he's not dealing with anything sinful or immoral. I mean, let's think about it. Paul said this, it was the love of Christ that constrained him in all that he did. Is that not even the reason why God desires us to serve Him? Is it out of law? No, it never is in Scripture. Never was. God wants us to serve Him because we love Him. Look at verse 21 of our text. He brings up a very important important point here I want to bring up. Verse 21. He's trying to give understanding. He says, listen, you guys got to understand this. You're in this church with all these, this is unto the Gentiles now this letter is going to be addressed. All right. So he's not speaking to Jewish brethren, he's speaking to the Gentile brethren. And he's reminding us, he think about this for a second. Think about this. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogue, synagogues every Sabbath day. He says, do you understand, they're being taught this every single week. You just can't come around and flaunt it. You're going to be offensive and it's wrong. And more importantly, where he's going with this one here is before those who are still lost. Those who are apart from Christ. He also knows this is important before the lost. Now, of course, our culture is changing rapidly there wasn't necessarily a whole lot of challenges within our own nation being very much based on Bible principle coming through that this would come up for us. But we can see that's rapidly changing right now. Now, let me finish with this in Galatians chapter 5. Let me finish with this. Because the truth is, it's easy to say this, but actually putting it into practice... It's difficult. The strength to be able to do this is actually much more difficult than you might think. Because let me, let me give you I, it, just a couple of months ago, I was at a lunch. I was at a lunch with a person that that knew of our church and whatnot. And and my flesh wanted to rear up really good in the moment. And at the time, I think I'm fine. I'm you know, I think I'm in a spiritual place, all that stuff. I'm at the lunch. And he he, out of the blue, I wasn't expecting this. Brought up a problem he had with our church. You want to know what it was? I'll tell you what it was. If my flesh comes out here, I'm sorry. I was just shocked at the moment. That I do announcements on slides before the services. And I'm sitting across the table and I just heard that and I'm like, wait. What did I just hear? And, oh, did the thoughts come into my mind. They did. I'm like, wait, wait. I wanted to go right into it. You have a problem with that? I want to say, do you know where you go to church? And just list it. Wham! And you have a problem because I actually show announcements on, a, on slides on a power projector before the church? But that would not have been right. Mm-mm. It wouldn't have been right. That would have been about me wanting, because I knew in principle, I'm right on this. There is nothing wrong or immoral or sinful about showing announcements on that before services. Nope. Nothing. But that was a time, no, no, no. The response there isn't about me being right in that moment. It isn't. It's about understanding that in that area, that it, without a doubt is a weaker brother. That's exactly what I was dealing with. And by the way, just because they're weak in some areas doesn't mean that person is stronger than me in other areas. And so that's what had to come in and guide my next words out of my mouth. We're not about, you are so wrong. So anyhow, the point is, sometimes the ability to accomplish this takes much more strength than what you realize. I can prove it in Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Let's go back to 13 and 14. He says, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that, you, that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, Notice where he's going now in verse 16. He's dealing with this by love, serve one another. But if you bite, devour, there's division. Take heed that you be not consumed one of another. Stop the fighting. Don't use liberty all of a sudden allow that to cause division when it shouldn't be there. But then he gets to the strength behind it. This I say then walk in the spirit. He knew what was taking place was of the flesh on both sides, it was all of the flesh. This I say then, walk in the Spirit. And boy, that's true. The ability to actually accomplish this, to demonstrate love, of loving somebody you don't like, the ability to maintain that comes from God's love himself when you're walking in the Spirit. When you're, and again, that's not some mystical thing. That is just simply that surrender, yielded life to the Spirit of God that needs to take place every day in our life that yieldedness to Him but to have the strength to accomplish that you're going to need God's strength for this because you could just think of think of your own flesh all of a sudden you're hit with something and you know there's not a doubt in your mind you are convinced I'm right in this I'm right I know the Bible behind this I'm right in this hmm you'd be amazed how easy the flesh can come right up in that You need God's Spirit and His wisdom in those moments. The goal is, as we love each other, is to help bring the other person up. Not establish that you have better knowledge. It's to bring them to a place where they are growing in Christ. Where that does take place. So, James comes down now. He sees the problems are going to be taking place in this church. He knows there's still issues that are there. So now he uses wisdom with them to say, all right, listen, the fact is they've got to get along. They're going to need this. Just like we do. And what's going to, what's going to govern and allow them to be able to do that is have that, just like Christ established in John chapter 13, is to have a genuine love for each other. To allow that royal law, the law of Christ, govern our actions. Govern our actions with heads bowed and eyes closed.